0: Welcome to this live edition of the Seneca podcast coming to you today from the China Institute in Manhattan. Let's hear you folks make a little noise. All right. That's a little noise. All right. Uh, Thank you so much to our good friends here at the China Institute for co-sponsoring this event. I am Kaiser Guo, and I am joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldhorn, a man who is speculatively stockpiling pre-tariff steel
1: and aluminum in a giant warehouse on his (laughs) land in Nashville, Tennessee. Jeremy. Greet the people. <laughs> Hello, people. You can come and live in my warehouse when the nuclear war starts. <laughs> <laughs> what else do you stop by? there? I don't even want to know. I don't really
0: I want don't to know.
1: That. Uh, Jeremy, tell our friends about SubChina Access. Yeah, just briefly, SubChina Access is our new membership program. You get a uh, members-only newsletter once a week, and we're going to be upping that to more than once a week uh, in the near future. You get access to Slack, our uh, the Slack uh, software, uh, where you can chat with our editorial team anytime you like. And you get steep discounts to um, events, uh, live events, uh, not free ones like this one, but ones that you would otherwise have to pay a lot of money for. So I'd really like to encourage you all to join. Uh, we are trying to build a community of people who care about China, and we're really keen to have new members.
0: You also get early releases of the podcast. So uh, you right. get them
1: on Monday or Tuesday instead of
0: th- having to wait till Thursday or Friday. So uh, let's jump right in, shall we, into this this topic. So at, at any given time in recent years, some 300,000-plus students from the People's Republic of China are attending universities here in the United States. Uh, a great many of them, I dare say probably most of them study, they make friends, they explore America, perhaps they fall in love and uh, either remain here to continue their studies or to work, or they return to China along with uh, many other sea turtles. And they often have their horizons vastly broadened. They have new ideas, new perspectives, and are filled with new entrepreneurial
1: energies. Uh, So when they head back Of course that's the ideal case and it's appropriate that Kaiser makes the sunny case while I make the negative case because the truth is also that many Chinese students feel intense alienation and social isolation here in the United States. Sometimes they even experience racism and prejudice not only from people of other races and ethnicities but even from Chinese from other parts of greater China or from Chinese Americans. So as tensions uh, between China and the United
0: States rise, the experience of Chinese students in America is receiving uh, an increasing amount of attention. Uh, They are uh, more and more assertive, these Chinese students are, about their own political beliefs, whether they drink deeply of American political culture and come to embrace its values and its institutions, or whether they become defensive, as is often the case, about China uh, when confronted with attitudes and ideas about their own country and especially about its government that are fundamentally at odds with what they've been brought up to believe, uh, they often take very grave offense at how professors, for example, uh, in classrooms or their American classmates or other students from China talk about China. Uh, Some really bristle or even protest very loudly at who,
1: for example, is invited to campus to speak and, of course, the students come under pressure from a number of other sources. Uh, recent allegations in the media have surfaced about the rule that groups like uh, CSSAs, the Chinese Students and Scholar Associations, have played on campuses uh, Their relations uh, or supposed relations with uh, the Chinese embassy and consulates uh, and with Chinese government bureaus and intelligence services, endowments from wealthy and politically connected Chinese are also under scrutiny in the United States right now, as of course are China's Confucius Institutes. And in reaction to revelations
0: about CSSA and uh, other Chinese influence or interference operations, Chinese students in the U.S. are now coming under political pressure and some scrutiny. Uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray was testifying before the Senate Intelligence Committee not long ago, and he spoke of a whole-of-society threat from China, not just a whole-of-government, but a whole— of society threat, Uh, and I think that there's imminent risk, if not indeed already a reality already upon us, of racial profiling, of of a red scare, of a new McCarthyism, of a significant uptick in anti-Chinese or even anti-East Asian hate crime here in America. So we have lots to talk about, obviously, and fortunately, two of the best people I know to talk about these issues with. Uh, these are two people who have studied the Chinese student experience in the U.S. pretty extensively. So first of all, we'd like to welcome Sishi Tu, who's actually working on Chinese high school students in the U.S., but has, of course, not only experienced university here herself, but has also thought and written about it extensively.
1: So Cixi, uh welcome
0: to Seneca.
2: Hi, good to be here.
1: And we are delighted to welcome back Eric Fish, author of China's Millennials, uh, who lived in China for many years uh, and is now working on his second book about Chinese university students. Eric wrote an excellent long-form piece for uh, sub about this topic, uh, which we titled Caught in a Crossfire, Chinese Students Abroad and the Battle for Their Hearts. Um, we'll link to that on the podcast page. Um, we are really looking forward to your new book. Welcome well, back you. to Seneca, Eric. Great to be back. Cici, um this is your first time on Seneca, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your own history of study here in the United States, and what got you interested in researching and writing about this Chinese student experience in the U.S.?
2: Okay, so I am a Ph.D. candidate in sociology at CUNY The Center, and my dissertation research is on Chinese students coming to U.S. for private high schools because they are only allowed to get a degree from a private institution, not a public institution, for secondary education. I got interested in them because I, I observed a lot of family friends sending their kids as early as, you know, 10, 12, 14 to the U.S. alone. For school, so you definitely expect that they have very emotional and complicated experience here at school. That's why I, uh, I start to research them. Also, the parents piece is interesting to me as well because they are the rising Chinese upper middle class, right? And that gets us wonder why do they made the decisions to send their kids here. Uh, And also, I'm interested is also because I have a personal experience studying here. I I go to Columbia for my master's degree and then my doctorate degree at CUNY, so I kind of can understand their experience from an older age, but I keep wondering, how could it be if you're that young? That's basically my story of why I get interested in this topic.
0: And you're originally from Shanghai, is that right? Yes. Okay, interesting. So, um, Eric, you're also, you're working on another book right now, and it's on the specific topic that we're talking about tonight, right? How's that mm-hmm. coming along? And, and tell us about the research that you're doing oh, for slowly it. Slowly but surely. Um, but yeah, I was... I I did a book on
3: Chinese youth when I was in China, and I thought it was just fascinating how the massive socioeconomic changes unfolding in the country were affecting young people's outlooks, ideology, um, just everything. And then uh, it was really fascinating when I came back here to kind of see when you add this Uh, foreign environments to it and everything that comes with American society, uh, how that shakes up ideology, influence, and whatnot. Um, So that's what I'm kind of looking at is the Chinese uh, student experience themselves. How are young Chinese coming here from that environment in China? How are they being influenced? And then the other side of that is the numbers have exploded so rapidly. It went from about 60,000 Chinese university students 10 years ago to about 350,000 now. So just this massively quick uptick in numbers. And that's really um, upended a lot of universities uh, in a lot of ways, good and bad. Um, So that's the other side of it, uh, how it's affecting uh, American higher ed. And then also uh, greater U.S.-China relations, Uh, like I I wrote about in that piece, uh, I think uh, there is – some conventional wisdom that if Chinese come to the U.S., uh, they'll adopt a more liberal uh, political point of view, take that back to China. But then there's been another side of that lately that they come here, get disillusioned and go back more nationalistic than in the first place. And just kind of seeing how uh, neither one of those is quite Wrong or quite right, but it's very complicated, so that's what I'm trying hey, to do. Can dig I into. just go
1: back to the mm-hmm. numbers? You said 350,000. Does that include uh, high school students, or was that just tertiary? That's just institutions tertiary, That's probably? just, yeah, Well, well There's
3: 60,000 high school students 60,000.
2: Yeah, that's uh, uh, roughly over 60,000 high school students, and you probably um, miss um, a couple of them because some of them have green cards and things like that. Oh, right. Yeah.
0: Okay, so these are Chinese nationals who are studying yeah. in the United mm-hmm. States. Interesting. Um, so the students who, who came from China uh, back in in my day uh, are very different from the ones who are coming here today. Uh, Back then, it was really the cream of the crop. It was really only the very, very top students, you know, who had to, it was quite onerous to be able to actually test in and and get a scholarship from the United States to come here to study, in in addition to, you know, the costs of of travel and and living and so forth. Uh, You know, I imagine that that they're a lot more diverse right now, the students who are in in China, and uh, many are still sort of getting in for sure on this, the sheer strength of their academic performance. But there are others whose parents, you know, pretty early on, opt out of the gaokao, the high, the, the, the college exam track, and decide. I mean, my, my sister-in-law, her kids, they've already decided she's he's not going to go gaokao track. He's going to study in the United States. I mean, they've, they've decided, and he's only six or seven years old right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, really, uh, there are people who can afford to basically buy their way in to the U.S. education system as well. So what changed in China, in the United States, in the respective uh, educational institutions of these two countries uh, to, to make this, this happen, to make this number just shoot up, as you say, by, you know, by more than like five times in just a decade. Uh, what's changed with immigration policy, uh, with the job market, uh, with other drivers I'm sure that I'm missing, um, to see so many Chinese students now in the U.S. And what were sort of the inflection points along the way? I would
3: say one of the big inflection points, one of the big changes uh, from the U.S. side was the financial crisis. And all of a sudden, there was Ah. a ton of state funding that was uh, lost for universities. So uh, all of a sudden, universities uh, realized uh, they need to make up that money somehow. So um, that's been a big kind of point of contention with this uh, influx. And uh, Chinese students are about one third of international students now, by far the the highest uh, proportion, double uh, from India. Um, So that was one kind of pull factor. But this came at the same time. Uh, The economy is still growing very quickly in China. More and more people are entering the middle class. And I think over the last 10 years, especially, there has been this kind of uh, national introspection about the Gaokao, about the college entrance exam in China, and how hard it is on young people. And I think this is really kind of a lot of parents have started to see, uh, well, this uh, education system can be quite brutal and uh, not leave students with as well rounded as of an education as they can get in the U.S. So that's kind of pushing uh, a lot here as
0: well. Um, so yeah I think it's a combination of push and pull factors. So it's mm-hmm. like my kid is an underachiever so let's send him to the U.S. or my kid <laughs> is an overachiever so let's send him to the
3: yeah and I, I think i mean there is this perception too that you can get much more opportunities uh, with a foreign degree uh, i think the gap is kind of starting to close you see the income gap where you can get with the domestic chinese and a foreign degree kind the of shrinking. high way bump is
0: shrinking now. Yeah, yeah
3: but yeah so m- more people now that i talk to don't cite so much the job opportunities but just like the more well-rounded education experience that they can get here
1: Saty, so if I can turn to you, and at the risk of generalization, I think it's pretty safe to say that uh, students from China are typically less extroverted, shall we say, than uh, your average American student. Um, how has the presence of so many Chinese students changed social interaction Uh, between international students from China and American students, or because they can find large social circles of people who speak their native language, is there now actually less interaction between Chinese and American students?
2: Yeah, so I think it depends on what kind of school or college they went to, right? Usually, I think when there are a large student Chinese student's presence, they're very, very likely to stick with the Chinese students because, you know, it's culturally closer and some of them haven't passed their language barrier yet. It's easier for them to communicate with other Chinese students. Um, in other cases, say, if they went to a more rural place in the high school setting, then they might go to cl- places that don't have that many Chinese students, then they were kind of forced to socialize more with the American students. So it might have some positive effects on them. You know, they tend to... um, participate in sports events with their american um, teenagers and they also will probably will try harder to understand american pop culture you know by watching more tv or whatever to try to understand all the cultural reference so that is like i think there is a regional difference and also the critical mass of chinese other presence of chinese students on campus
0: uh, so since she was staying with you, what are some of the other social issues that Chinese students typically face uh, on American campuses? I mean, I was recently on a campus and, and talking to a group of Chinese students who all told me that there's this big divide between uh, the students from mainland China and people like me, ABCs, as they call them, American-born Chinese. They said, you know— they, they don't play with or they don't hang out with us they don't invite us to hang out with them uh, I, I, many of them told me that and, and also what about relations between uh, Chinese from mainland China and from Taiwan or from Hong Kong and I mean I remember back when I was in college in the 1980s it was already very divided it was really rare to see people from Hong Kong and Taiwan even hanging out together and there were the few mainland students had nothing to do with them
2: Yeah, so I think the ABC case is probably true. Like, I mean, it still varies, right? Because there are some Chinese students who play with all American students, including ABCs. But they do complain about how ABCs are trying to differentiate themselves from other Chinese students, right? This is the idea of ABC is trying really hard to say, we are not abc we are americans right so they don't want to be associated with this whole chinese identity especially when there's a lot of chinese students on campus and a lot of they it, do that
0: when they go to china too it's really annoying yeah <laughs> like um, you know they see they see a group of white people and they start speaking english in a really pronounced american accent really loudly just like to make sure it, somebody knows their yeah,
2: the worst and, form of Islamic and religion. I think for the Taiwan and Hong Kong piece is more like case by case because, uh, first of all, I think there are less Taiwan and Hong Kong students nowadays than before. So the mainland Chinese sometimes are, like, overwhelmed everywhere. So sometimes they might just want to, you know, eat Chinese food. So they have to hang out with mainland Chinese students. Uh, but in other cases, I think especially in terms of political views, they're apparently very different. So they might not get along as well. And I think there's another interesting piece that you guys kind of mentioned earlier is there might be a regional divide as well within oh, China, right? Yeah. It's like, I when you know they're out with
1: Beijingers. Yeah, you, you know, when, you know, when you there mean? are <laughs> critical
2: amount of Chinese students on campus, they can choose to hang out with people from their own regions, right? So they can speak their local dialect. I was thinking of this because you mentioned Hong Kongese, so maybe they can speak Cantonese with Canton students from Canton. But not from well, with Shanghainese, right? Right, right, right? So that's another kind of linguistic culture piece to the story. Yeah. And
0: just like in China, you Shanghainese only hang out with yourselves, right? You exclude <laughs> no. everything.
2: That's right? not true.
1: <laughs> okay, what about racism? Um, you know, since Trump's election, we've seen a lot of unpleasant incidents across the country that have targeted people of uh, all kinds of non-white uh, races. Uh, what about Chinese? I mean, is this something that Chinese people, Chinese students are concerned about? Have, have either of you talked to people who've experienced racist behavior? Uh, yeah, I mean,
3: I've talked to a lot of students who've experienced outright overt racism, being called racial slurs and whatnot. Um, I think more often, though, it's like microaggressions, and I think it can be especially uh, hurtful. Can you define mm-hmm. that for an old man? <laughs> a, micro- what is a microaggression <laughs> like when my dad would be
0: shopping in a big box store and someone would come up and say, excuse me, sir, but you look like you would know something about computers. <laughs>
3: right. Yeah,
0: I, I, don't, I don't know how much... Uh, the students
3: I've talked to who've been around since before and after Trump, I don't think have noticed a huge uptick. I I did hear some stories from around that time of, White supremacists on campus going around saying really nasty things. Uh, I don't know how much of an effect that has had on on the average Chinese students. Um, but one thing a lot who have kind of trouble with is, I mean, something I can kind of relate to is like when I first went to China as a white American male, like I had never experienced racism at all, any kind of discrimination in the U.S. My identity was pretty much. What I made of it. Um, But then when I went to China, I kind of had all this baggage thrust upon me based on whatever people think of that background. Um, But of course, for me in China, it's basically white privilege on steroids. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But for Chinese coming to the US, I think it can be quite jarring just kind of the beliefs a lot of people have about China. And just all of a sudden, you become Chinese and you have this baggage thrust upon you that you'd never thought about. Um, So the Chinese label and also the Asian stereotypes, just very few Chinese have this concept of Asian identity, but that's thrust upon them. So a lot of things, just people asking even uh, basic questions about China, I think can be a little off-putting and especially when people uh, have certain misconceptions about China. And there is a lot of misconceptions I found by Americans still of what life is like in China, um, thinking it's like it still was during, like it was during the Mao era, uh, eat dogs, eat dogs, people get their hands cut off if they're caught stealing, just all kinds of things like this. And I think a lot of Chinese (laughs) are quite taken aback at how negative uh, a lot of Americans views of China are. And that can kind of hurt at a personal level when you start to realize, I think that people see me as Chinese. That's part of my identity
0: that didn't really think about before. Sichu, maybe you can you answer this. Um, the fact that Chinese students are now coming to the U.S. from more developed, you know, a, a more developed, a more wealthy, a more a confident China—that must have changed something, though. Yeah. In a way, yeah.
2: I think the most um, interesting I heard is a lot of students always say, "Oh, I think China is way better. Like, I can't wait to go back to China." Because uh, apparently, a lot of these students go to rural area or suburban area for schools, right? So they didn't see the very prosperous part of America. So they were like, "This place." so boring you know they don't have because they mainly come from Shanghai Beijing Guangzhou you know big cities like New York City so they find like America to be like way boring than I imagine yeah this and is my,
0: my daughter who calls Chapel Hill North Carolina Da yeah they,
2: yeah they, they basically well, I mean she's right yeah they they call, they call a lot of campus like right they, they say like I'm going back to the village they might be unleashed for a while to go to New York you know for a week during their Thanksgiving but then they're going back they was like oh like you know going back to the village and feeling very depressed about you know like having to go back to a back lifestyle that they're not familiar with.
1: Makes sense. Maybe related to the question of racism, um, what about the reaction of other students on campus uh, to this large influx of international students from mainland China? Uh, Do you think that other students, particularly American students, are starting to feel that they're sort of being overwhelmed by this, this mass of, of Chinese students. And sort of related to that, I mean, in, in terms of participation in the community, a complaint I've heard in New Zealand a lot where I have family, um, there's you know a very big Chinese presence, particularly in the capital, Auckland, very, very noticeable, particularly on the campuses. And the New Zealanders don't, you know, despite recent media articles there's not much of a red scare or yellow peril it's not like the u.s or australia i I, I feel but new zealanders are very concerned that the chinese students and immigrants don't seem to want to participate in community activities do you have this kind of sense on american campuses
3: yeah, so I just I just spent a week at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, which is the most Chinese university in the U.S. right now, almost six thousand uh, Chinese students, uh, and there was this kind of everybody that I talked to, kind of the Chinese students, the faculty, the the locals, kind of sense that there is this kind of separate bubble. Where Chinese kind of hang together. And it's not universal at all, but it is something kind of everybody seems to recognize. And there were, I did hear a lot of kind of negative stereotypes associated with the influx of Chinese students. One of the most common was that Chinese students are really rich, just here to waste their parents' money. And that's kind of reinforced by there's a handful of. Kids on campus with Ferraris and Maseratis and uh, kind of flashy cars. So that kind of reinforces this idea that Chinese are spoiled, rich kids. Um, and there has been some growing pains, uh, what everybody was saying at the university, trouble uh, in class uh, adjusting to students coming from a very different uh, educational background. And some local students have complained about that. And there is also this perception that. Uh, with the influx of Chinese, that's taking spots away from local students. Uh, that's usually not really the case, but there is this perception that uh, we're selling out our university. In fact, at, at the University of Illinois a few months ago, there was this bus advertisement. They got a lot of play uh, where they listed one of the advantages of their buses as, you won't feel like you're in China uh, when you're on our buses. And they then issued an, a quote-unquote apology afterwards saying that, uh, while we find different ethnicities valuable, we're not comfortable with selling out our university to the highest foreign bidder and these Chinese students put a lot of burdens on uh, classrooms that kind of dilute the experience. Wait, for this local is what students. the bus
0: company said. In yeah, Greenhouse? this is the bus company. They, <laughs> I mean, they, they couldn't are, have just said, "Oh, what we actually meant was crowded." That's all. We no, they just yeah.
3: really waded back deep into that debate, and I, it was interesting. Like talking to people in the community about that ad, because I was kind of like, "How widespread of an opinion is this?" And it was kind of like, "Well, that bus company's crazy in the first place." It's kind of well known, and but there are some people who have that feeling. But I, I think what was more overwhelming though was they kind of said. Well, most people, especially on the university, especially the students, kind of jumped in and jumped to Chinese students' defense and said, "Like, there's no place for this racism in our community." Good, so, good. Yeah, yeah, so I was kind of surprised there are a lot of stereotypes, but there is
0: a lot of woke uh, people kind of, too, yeah, right? Yeah, that's good, yeah. excellent. <laughs> I know, I, Sushi, so we're talking about university students, and your work is on private high school students. Are, are some of the things that we're talking about? They must apply also to the high school students you've been talking to, also like the race experience, the sort of exclusion. Are, are can we lump them in, kind of?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think the the what we call like racialization process for these uh-huh. st- students and or any international student that's kind of universal, right? Like you come to a new country and then like because the society itself is super racialized, you're forced to you know choose a category right so you were never asian before but now you're asian right everyone like treat you as asian and then they kind of put their idea of model minority or whatever on you and then that you must be good at math. why are you oh it's weird that you're good at arts right all these kind of things going on like for uh, any high school students and you can observe this in most of the math clubs in these schools, like they're overwhelmingly Chinese or Chinese and Koreans. So it's like, you know, you, they still like kind of like almost become a self-fulfilled prophecy. <laughs> like, you know, by uh, responding to the stereotypes. So they are good at math. So they join math club. They go to math competition and all these kind of things. And I think also it's pretty hard for them to break it. Because I remember a boy telling me that he tried really hard to go to a football varsity team and he practiced like day after day after day. And at the end, he got in. But then he said just like on the bus ride to the field, he feels so segregated. He said like no one has been talking to him. And then he said, oh, whatever, I'm gonna drop out and go back to my comfortable junior varsity team, which are all international students.
0: And join the math club. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, it's really not fair. I mean, not all Chinese people are good at
1: math. Only most of us. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. So, if we can go back to university students, what about their engagement in American politics? You know, a generation ago, the the earlier waves of of Chinese uh, students who came here tended to shy away completely from politics and not get involved at all. Uh, But this is a very different generation. Has that changed? And if it has, you know, how do you think? The current generation of Chinese students—how are they making sense of American politics? Which uh, how are this, uh, any of rather us. special time. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, it's so diverse now. I think that's one of the things that
3: marks this generation: is just the diversity of ideological uh, outlooks and levels of interest in politics. I would say the plurality probably kind of looks on at American politics with detached bemusement, um, kind of watching what goes on, but not so much into it. I don't know, are not participating as much, but I think that's changing. I thought it was interesting during the last election, there were like Chinese students that were getting involved in campaigns. Um, not a huge number, uh, but there does seem to be uh, a growing kind of engagement interest in American politics and uh, also in campus politics. Uh, I was just at Purdue as well, and uh, there was this tuition hike for international students a few years back, and uh, the Chinese student group organized kind of a protest, and you saw a lot of Chinese students up, out there with signs, so getting involved in, in campus politics more as well. I think kind of challenging that perception that at least the pocketbook issues of China. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah,
2: and I think it, 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 I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize it, but I think there are some um, variables that come into play. For example, if you come to here early, like the high school students generally are more involved in politics because mm. they kind of yeah. see through, you know, in their student leadership. Um, election all these kind of things and a lot of them will run for the student leadership as well you know partly for their college application <laughs> um, and also I think the other thing is depending on what kind of major you study right especially those studies social sciences tend to be more into um, you know American politics and some of the in general, STEM major students tend to shy away from politics. They usually will tell you, "I'm just com- I'm I just come to the U.S. to study. Then I'll go back. I don't want to know anything, you know, like uh, outside of this box." But apparently, there are others who are more into it. Right.
3: I think that's a point worth noting too about majors. Uh, whereas in the past, it was overwhelmingly like STEM fields, uh, science, uh, engineering, math, that kind of thing. But you see. A lot more Chinese students now going into like liberal arts uh, fields like political science, journalism, uh, things that aren't going to bring a huge paycheck, but uh, or a lot are kind of pursuing uh, their interests or pursuing things they find kind of have a, a higher meaning uh, in their, their own eyes. So I think that's one interesting yeah, that, development. That,
2: that kind of tie back to usually sometimes it's also because they have certain economic basis to support it, right? Like their parents mm. are not like looking forward to them to have a huge paycheck, bring back and support a whole family kind of thing, right? So they usually, the the Chinese parents today are more supportive in their kids choosing whatever they like, even like, you know, arts and um, humanities that doesn't necessarily bring them, um, you know, like a high pay career, right?
0: Right, so it's <laughs> sociology. <right? laughs> okay, now, now related to the Chinese parents here Now one of the issues, even if the, the Chinese students themselves aren't necessarily participating in droves in American politics One political issue in America that has their parents really, really up in arms is affirmative action This is like a, a gigantic driving issue Uh are university and especially high school students themselves are is this an, a, something of concern to them as they're looking at college applications or as they're looking at admissions to graduate school, graduate programs as undergraduates? Are they concerned about affirmative action and do they realize that there this issue of affirmative action is just basically the right to using them as a bludgeon?
2: Yeah I think the parents I interviewed first of all most of the Chinese parents are not woke right so they don't right. understand what's the like racial hierarchies like why no, they're sound asleep, yeah. yeah why like affirmative action exists in the first place so they will go along with the like Uh, more like conservative narrative of it's hurting us, like my kid is not getting into the universities you know, like my kids cannot go to Harvard because of the affirmative action, but on the other hand I think within Chinese parents they have another concern is they feel like being on a international students give them certain disadvantage. At least certain um, high school parents will think that way. So they, they might even think of getting their kids a green card in order to have a better chance in getting to university. I never really know whether that's true, but that's what they believe.
1: Right. Yeah. Eric, um, you, you describe uh, these students in the article we published uh, as caught in the crossfire. Um, they feel that they have to choose sides uh, between China and the US simply put. And choosing sides has its dangers. Uh, there's the University of Maryland student Yang Shuping, who gave a talk that many Chinese students found extremely offensive, and even caused a response from the Chinese embassy. Um, but students who express, express uh, patriotism in other ways uh, are also drawing fire. Can you comment on this? I, I don't, everyone knows about this Yang Shuping case. Okay, so it was
0: a University of Maryland student who gave uh, a commemoration address, and talked about how, you know, once she came, she came from this terribly polluted China and came to America, took off her mask and br- breathed the free air, or the clean air. And, uh, and free yeah,
3: expression, free and expression and free air, clean air, right, cleaner, right, right, right. yeah. Right. Yeah, and then she just got this horrendous backlash. Yeah, um, yeah. And she basically has been in hiding since then, I think. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a pretty extreme uh, example of a student speaking out uh, taboo political opinions in China, and there's plenty to Criticize of her exact remarks, Um, but yeah, she just had this massive pile on where state media in China got involved. A foreign ministry spokesperson weighed in, and she was just completely vilified. Um, So yeah, and uh, some students that I've interviewed have mentioned that specifically, saying that kind of makes them pause about what they would say publicly. Uh, But I think if you take that down a couple levels. Uh, Some students are just worried about speaking out taboo political opinions to where they would get peer pressure. Uh, They'll look like traitors to fellow countrymen. Um, And then some people say when they go back to China, talk to their family and friends, uh, if they speak anything good about America or criticize China, that can kind of make them seem like a a traitor. They've been brainwashed by America. Um, So yeah, that's one side. Uh, But then, yeah, on the other side, in the U.S., there can be a lot of clashes between uh, American and Chinese students over political issues, especially. Uh, And I think that's, I mean, that's pretty normal, uh, no matter what country you're talking about. But I think the U.S. and China is almost tailor-made for these kinds of clashes. Um, Whereas I grew up in the 90s uh, in the U.S., right after we'd won the Cold War, the Soviet Union collapsed. And I just kind of was brought up seeing democracy as the end of history, as it was called in that famous essay. Um, And I just kind of, it would baffle me if somebody would not want to have a democratic system that was just kind of the way I was brought up uh, the what I, what I was taught to believe this kind of American exceptionalism and then on the Chinese side you have this patriotic education that went into effect uh, right around the same time that really started uh, emphasizing China's greatness in history uh, that was stopped for a century of humiliation when the West was able to get the upper hand on China develop more quickly and then just subjugate it humiliate it uh, but now the Communist Party has come and started to lift China back up to its place of world respect, um, but a lot of the formal imperialists can't handle that. Uh, they would keep wanting to keep China down. And a lot of this language is used in, in the education, like there's a sense of superiority in America, uh, this uh, arrogance and thinking that quote-unquote Western democracy is the only political system. Uh, so when a lot of American students come from their background and Chinese from that background, it's like American exceptionalism versus kind of Chinese insecurity. That's almost tailor-made to have the these clashes. Uh, and Chinese students said that again and again. Americans just can't accept that we might. And again, so ideologically diverse uh, Chinese coming here before coming here and after coming here. A lot see huge flaws in the system, but a lot do still support one party rule in the end after all of that, even if they're critical of certain aspects of it. But a lot of American students think, well, if you still support one party rule, or any number of political issues in China, there must be some piece of information missing, you must still be brainwashed to some extent, let me educate you about what you're missing out on. Uh, And a lot of times, these American students have never been to China, don't know as much as these Chinese students who after coming here think quite deeply about these things. So I
1: think it can really back a lot of Chinese students into a corner and feel. I, I, Mm -hmm. you know, I completely understand that Mm -hmm. uh, feeling. I mean, I think I've said on the show before, we did my family traveled a fair bit in the 80s, and I you know, grew up in apartheid, South Africa. While, while my parents were very liberal and you know, hated apartheid, when we, went, when we were in Europe, we would often get attacked for our government by you know, people who'd never been anywhere near the continent of Africa and didn't really know anything about South Africa. And we found it, you know, my parents, at least I was a kid, found it difficult not to defend themselves even though they found apartheid South Africa appalling. But when somebody you don't know buttonholes you, you know, on on campus on the street and starts criticizing your country, that is a very natural reaction. Mm. I don't think it's just to be blamed on the Chinese education system.
3: Yeah, and I think the demographics of Chinese students here play a role in that too, like we talked about, kind of overwhelmingly now middle to upper class urban young Chinese. And for them, China's transformation has just been... Especially pronounced. Uh, There's some of the big winners in the system. So a lot come here thinking China's advanced really well in my lifetime. Um, and you guys don't have WeChat, so
1: obviously it's <laughs> <is> wrong. <there. laughs> yeah,
3: but so like, here you are, cards to pay for things. Yeah, so. and then here you are bringing up human rights issues and Tibet issues,
0: and like who are you to to? challenges on that. So she, yeah. yeah, so I want to talk, I ask you, because it's a, it's a yeah. profoundly emotional experience to, to have this happen to you, right? And it's really frustrating to you when the very arguments that you want to muster in defense of this country are the ones that confirm to the American that you're brainwashed, right? I mean, the, 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 it's, it's got to be really frustrating. So tell us about your own personal experience of this in America, about trying to talk about the China you came from you come from Shanghai. I mean the most shining example of, of what you know reform and opening has done for China.
2: Yeah, so I think the brainwash narrative is really interesting, right? Because the thing is like, okay you are basically, uh, in Chinese we say, like, "Li right. like, no one, like, you're not, you're basically rejected both here and there because when you go to the U.S., people assume that, oh, you're so brainwashed. Do you know about the 3T? You know, like, Tiananmen, Taiwan, right. Tibet. Like, do you know what happened, right? Like they're, they can't wait to educate you about everything, <laughs> like, about your own country, right? So that's quite annoying. Even if you hold the exact same view as them, it's still quite annoying, right? Another person trying to say, I know better about your country, let me tell you what happened, right? So I think, but on the other hand, as Eric said, like, you also get rejected back home because you have this, like, now progressive liberal mind about, you know, how society is supposed to be, you become a bai Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you're, like, become a bai It's like, you are stupid. You are brainwashed by the American education. So you are brainwashed by both sides. (laughs) Like, who are you, right? So that is the interesting part of it. I think usually you encounter people who try to educate you a lot when they don't really know much better than you do. So that's like the annoying part, I think. Yeah,
1: Eric, maybe you could share what you learned from talking to um, Henry Cho, who you write about, who's talked about such issues quite a lot.
3: Oh, so yeah, he did a study at the University of Hawaii uh, a while back, and it it kind of sparked his interest when he talked to a Chinese classmate and he was kind of like what we you're talking about, like trying to tell her about Tiananmen and these other issues. And, got really defensive. So that kind of piqued his curiosity. And he did this qualitative study with uh, 18 Chinese students. I think it was really in-depth interviews. And he said, like, on some level, all of them were able to sympathize with this idea that Americans are biased or ignorant about China. Um, And that a lot of these students, like, affirmed that when they were back in China, they were very critical of the Chinese government. And there have been uh, studies to this effect, too, that Chinese students who... um, are looking to study abroad, on average, have a more critical view of the Chinese government um, than, than average. Uh, so yeah, they were very critical. But then when they came here, started to get challenged on these issues. Uh, one thing, there was a defense mechanism just to kind of feel this duty to defend the country. But a- another thing you kind of noticed is uh, after coming here is uh, national identity, whereas before, like difference between the Chinese people and the Chinese government were very clear. Those started to kind of mold together um, and just kind of wrapped up into this ball to where uh, Chinese identity was more closely aligned with the Chinese government, the Chinese state uh, and whatnot. So, yeah, it can be very, um, in a lot of ways, reinforce some
0: degree of nationalism. Yeah, I think it's time we talk about this CSSA, the uh, Chinese Students and Scholars Association, uh, and about the allegations, at least on, on some campuses, that they are being used by Chinese consulates, by even the embassy, uh, to keep tabs on disloyal Chinese students or Chinese scholars. Uh, what have you guys found out about this? What do you What do you know about the extent to which these allegations hold any water?
3: Um, well, I'd recommend, uh, there was a terrifically reported piece in Foreign Policy just recently uh, by Bethany Allen Abrahimian. Uh, I think that was the most in-depth investigation into this uh, thus far. It confirmed a lot of long-held suspicions. Um, but yeah, CSSAs have long been kind of uh, uh, under suspicion for having ties to Chinese consulates, like some of the events we talked about, Yang Shuping. Uh, the CSSA there was one of the first to criticize or make a video, like, Highlighting her distortions and lies, and then in the uh, Dalai Lama case, uh, UC San Diego it kind of sprang into action to protest him being there, and uh, they made some early remarks about being in contact with the embassy uh, over the matter, which raised a lot of eyebrows. Um, so I think uh, with the CSSA is if you have this image of like an octopus being controlled by Beijing with its tentacles and all 150 some odd chapters. That's not quite uh, accurate uh, at all. Um, Kind of, orchestrating everything Uh, these groups are primarily uh, student social groups they provide a lot of very practical uh, assistance Uh, and frankly in a lot of universities they provide services that universities have fallen short on like picking up new arrivals at the airport helping with job things but they do fun things like dating events stuff like that so uh, with most uh, groups it seems uh, I've, I've interviewed about a dozen uh, officers in the CSSA at different schools. Um, and it seems that's usually about the extent of it. They might have, or they usually do have contact with the local consulate once a year for the uh, annual uh, Chinese New Year party and get funded by that. And handover
0: um, of names of traders. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I haven't heard of that, but that's, that is possible. And a, a lot of what was in that foreign policy article, um, it kind of drove home how disparate the experience is. A lot of uh, CSSAs aren't really affected at all by the influence but a lot really are uh, like there's litmus tests political litmus tests uh, for uh, running for election uh, and there running been for, some, for election you know on campus within the, the, oh, the, uh, the, the organization right. oh, I see I see um, and there's been documented cases where uh, China used President Hu Jintao a couple of years ago and then Xi Jinping when he's visiting uh, the CSSA will get funding from the embassy to bus students uh, out to cheer for him um, and then yeah just other various patriotic activities and there was a uh, about two years ago, China's ministry of education issued this directive. Uh, and in it, it said that, uh, Consulate student groups abroad should uh, encourage patriotic energy uh, among study abroad students. And that was very vague, uh, but uh, some of the students that were interviewed for this article in Foreign Policy have said that they felt ideological pressure since then to like send out articles to the uh, group members, to hold activities, to watch uh, Chinese political events. Um, and what was really striking, I thought, from that is how a lot of the the presidents and other officers were resisting that. They didn't want to comply with that. And that's been interesting in my own interviews talking to some uh, some CSSA presidents I've talked to have criticized actions of other CSSAs, saying that the Dalai Lama reaction, for example, was going too far. But then another CSSA president I talked to said, well, the government wouldn't need to tell me to do that. If that happened at our university, I would organize the exact same kind of protest. So I think very diverse uh, in how influenced they are and um, what kind of activities they do. But there are
0: definitely uh, sorts of and, and
3: overreach and, and, by the Chinese consulates.
0: Sochi, like. have you had any any dealings with CSSAs and school universities that you've attended?
2: Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I think I um, intentionally detach from that organization because uh-huh. I, I I mentioned to Eric before. I find it interesting. Is back to like what you said. It's a broad spectrum but the way they're running the organization looks too similar to the way you know people learn like run student groups in china or any party associate you know (laughs) the whole hierarchy thing the whole politics the whole environment the the whole culture feeling of the organization feels so much like back in china and i was baffled by it because i don't understand how that it's possible because when I um, enter Colombia, I saw CSA is just, you know, a student group which like, you know, like black students group kind of thing. You do some fun stuff together. You kind of meet people coming from the same country. Then you figure out hmm, the environment is a little <laughs> bit different. I probably want not attend more events, but on the other hand, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of things they do are really just like dating events or, you know, celebrating uh, Chinese New Year. So that doesn't sound so sketchy or you cannot detect any link to the embassy when you're attending these events. So that's why like, they're very loosely organized. It's very hard to say who are doing this out of their own patriarchy action or they're doing it because someone <coughs> have told them to do so. Let's
1: turn to the classroom itself. Um, You know, I think one of the complaints you hear about, uh, especially at universities with large numbers of Chinese students, is that in a classroom setting, uh, if there are too many mainland Chinese, it will inhibit discussion of, you know, politics, of democracy, and particularly, of course, if it comes to questions of Chinese uh, history uh, and politics. Um, Is this as big a problem as some people are making it out to be? Uh, I mean, this is definitely a a
3: separate aspect from the CSSAs is there have been a lot of reports of um, professors, especially that teach sensitive topics, having students report back uh, to higher authorities on things their classmates have said and students getting uh, one professor I talked to teaches Tibetan studies. He said there was one student that said something in class and got a call within a couple hours about it. Those cases happen for sure. uh, They're pretty rare. I don't think there's something that a lot of students worry about. Um, but there are a, a lot of worries about contentious uh, issues and this is a huge thing in Australia last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were four separate incidents that happened in pretty close succession where, um, like, in one case, a professor referred to Taiwan as a country, and he was challenged uh, by Chinese students secretly uh, recording it, and then it blew up online. And in another case, a professor put, like, do not cheat on the board in English and Chinese only. Ooh. Well, uh, that, let's see, that one, I, I have <laughs> not have problems with Yeah, yeah well, in, in all these cases, uh, there was a huge backlash. Uh, sometimes CSSA was involved in promoting it, and then Chinese state media latched on. Pre- in, in three of the cases, the lecturers apologized later. Um, so there's... there's in
0: Australia, but there have been some cases in the U.S. too, yes? Uh,
3: Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of professors, too, talk about incidents like that that don't blow up uh, to quite that uh, extent, but students getting uh, very defensive over these issues in class. Um, So yeah, it's a challenge. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Uh, Jonathan Sullivan, the professor at the University of Nottingham in in the U.K., he wrote this interesting follow-up after my article about how he kind of deals with it because he said like 10 years ago he had had an issue with this uh, student who just stood up and said, Taiwan isn't a country. Um, And he said he started kind of at the beginning of his classes saying, okay, we're going to talk about some sensitive issues. And I want you to try to think about uh, why different people might have different opinions on this. We're going to uh, interrogate the American or the, the Western view and the Chinese view. Any point is valid. We encourage you to speak up uh, and try to support your uh, stance with evidence. And he said that they talk about the three Ts and all sorts of sensitive political things. He said he's never had an outburst like that. So I thought that was pretty interesting about how some that's, professors... That is a yeah. best
0: practice that ought to be shared. I mean, it's yeah. a very good one. But there
3: I are anecdotal little stories about professors kind of being scared to speak up um, because of some of the backlash that you've seen. But I, there are people that argue like those four cases in Australia the backlash wasn't an affront to freedom of speech but an exercise of it by Chinese students with different points of view so uh, I don't know I don't take a position on it but um, I thought that was kind of an interesting. yeah
2: I, I also think like from teachers point of view there's like different ways of dealing with these issues right Like I feel like especially in some of the Australian case To be honest, it was because the teacher was ignorant enough to kind of fall into certain stereotype of China and then promoting it, then the students are unhappy about it. So I think you can, like what you mentioned, the Norton Hill case is really good, as that the professor should expect that students going to have different opinions and you just need to deal with it because I, what I see is there is still a power dynamic, right? The professors still have way more power than the students in the classroom. There is like basically you are in control, then you need to be somewhat sensitive about students feeling, you know, they might it might be the first time they're taking in this information. You need to kind of prep them to you know, learn new things. That's the way to, you know, ask them to open new perspectives to open for other possibilities to understand China better, right?
3: I might add to those those four incidents, the, the aftermath of those was pretty extreme in Australia. There were headlines in newspapers that said, like, there's a war being waged uh, by Chinese students against their Australian lecturers, or like Australian teachers are increasingly coming under uh, attack by Chinese students and very kind of generalized. And I mean, these were a very small number of cases. These were four cases out of, I think it's like 150,000 Chinese students in Australia. Uh, so there was kind of this narrative that came out afterwards where you did have a very small group of Chinese students. Students setting the tone for the entire cohort. And I think that was kind of true here uh, as well with like the, the Dalai Lama deal with Yang Xuping, Ping, where you had a small but very, very vocal uh, minority speaking out and kind of setting the impression for the larger Chinese population, many of which have or uh, were criticizing much more quietly the reaction of those students or just totally disengaged.
0: Well, this is a problem that I think all open societies are going to be having as we, we have people from. from non-pluralist societies coming, in. and is it the right thing to do maybe to to talk to people as they come in, to explain to them, you know, give them a primer on, I mean, I don't think they're getting it necessarily when they come to, to ex- what to expect in an American university classroom. Uh, I, I, I think that maybe inoculating them in the way that that professor did, but not just, class by class, but sort of as an incoming student to a university. Yeah, I think some
2: universities start to have this, like, kind of bridge program, you know, kind of to prepare you culturally, right? It's like, oh, this is how American culture is different from Chinese culture, you know, like, or you need to be more active in classroom, like, you might be open to different views, you know, I think some universities start to build that into their institutional setting, but maybe not, like, enough yet.
0: So right now, the political environment as it is, there's, there's, you know, uh, I think it's fair to say that there's a, a gigantic debate underway about all sorts of facets of the U.S.-China relationship, whether it's trade or st- strategic relationship or what have you. Um, how is this all playing out in the Chinese student community? Um, with, they have a lot that's personally at stake in in how things end up going, and one would think that they would be maybe more incentivized to now get involved. Are either of you seeing more involvement by students in this broader topic of U.S.-China relations? Uh, are are there, you know, or or is it all the the complexities, the the hairy nature of these issues? Are they keeping their heads down below the parapet and afraid to to, to speak out? I mean, how would this? How is this affecting it? I haven't heard uh,
3: a lot of reaction from Chinese students like there have been a couple like this is kind of ramped up in just the past few weeks. Uh, like you mentioned, like the FBI director mentioning the whole of society threat, uh coming from China and uh, some U.S. politicians are starting to take on this issue now. Uh, I haven't heard a lot. I spent like the last two weeks interviewing probably two to three dozen Chinese students. I brought this up with all of them and not a whole lot were aware of this kind of building a political backlash to it. I think the, uh, The Australian case is is different. That's started earlier. Uh, The scholars I've talked to that are studying Chinese students there say that they seem to be a lot more aware of it. You have more senior officials there. Their uh, foreign minister uh, made some remarks a couple months ago. So I think those students are starting to kind of feel the heat more. Uh, I think we could very easily get there in the not-too-distant future if you start seeing this work its way up to more senior political figures becoming more of a mainstream uh, media issue. But I don't think a ton to put off by it just yet in this country at least but i don't know yeah because your-
2: I, I feel like at least from my own like social media uh kind of you know circle i didn't see enough people commenting on both issues the political issues was in china i think that has a reason because i feel like less and less people start to speak up their mind on wechat because you feel that it's more and more censored than before you know like um and so i think people are Getting more and more cautious about speaking out on certain issues and for the uh, for the FBI case I just feel like it doesn't get enough attention from the Chinese community Not a lot of people has been talking about it and feel like oh they are treating us as a threat How should we respond? I've never heard anything about it
1: Can I perhaps um Ask a last question about Confucius Institutes, not exactly the subject we're talking about, but very much related. What did the two of you make of the debate about Confucius Institutes on American university campuses? Uh, I don't have a a lot of
3: opinion either way. I think it's very interesting. Uh, But I think if you're worried about uh, Chinese government influence uh, in the U.S., um, I think a lot of the worry with the Confucius Institute – are that uh, like education about China and they're being watered down. There are certain taboo topics that they're uh, avoiding and certain hiring practices uh, that are raising a lot of eyebrows. Uh, so I think the concern with those is more that they're like, brainwashing American students in education about China. Um, but I think if you're concerned about... Which is
1: a pat- patently ridiculous concern. I've been, my entire career <laughs> has you, been trying you. to brainwash Americans about <laughs> China. And it's not that easy. <laughs>
3: no. no. So I think if that's their goal, I mean, they spend billions and billions on these uh, Confucius Institutes. I don't know how, how good their ROI is on that uh, brainwash attempt. Uh, but I mean, I, it's a perfectly valid concern though, just on principle, if they are in universities and you're substituting, um, more critical academic freedom um, to have these institutes that are paid for by the Chinese government. Uh, but if you're worried about Chinese government influence, I think that's not a huge, that's not as big uh, of a concern as what's uh, being done related to Chinese students themselves, like like we talked about earlier, trying to keep Chinese students in line one way or another, monitoring. Um, I think that's probably uh, a bit more of a, a risky. Um, quote-unquote, influence operation. Uh, but it seems that Confucius Institutes are getting the
0: lion's share of the political attention, at least. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, which is, as, as Jeremy says, it's patently absurd. What happened to agency? I mean, don't we—I mean, are we just, like, sit here helplessly as the sinister Chinese government reaches in and brainwashes? I mean, come on, really? We, are we so worried about that? I, I, I keep think coming back to this one basic point, which is that if we're really worried about the integrity of the American civic fabric— what is more likely to do harm to it? Uh, these ham-fisted, mostly stupid uh, efforts to influence American society that are, you know, spun out in Beijing, or our own paranoia, our propensity to, you know, fall into McCarthyist-style witch-hunting. This is a country, after all, which was gunning down turbaned Sikhs who are not, by the way, Muslim, after September 11th. This is a country you know, where we, we can very easily make these sorts of mistakes. Uh, I think the threat to the civic fabric comes much more from the sort of red scaremongering that, that we're seeing, hearing way too much of. While these issues are serious and should be taken seriously, I think the way that our guests today have treated them is, I think, a, a, a very good one. So Eric and sichi and I, I want to thank you both for, for joining us here at the China Institute and uh, for taking the time. And I also want to thank the, the good folks at the China Institute for co-sponsoring this event and for hosting. So let's hear it for our guests and for the China Institute. Yeah. And let's then move on to recommendations. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners that... Q music. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Sign up for our free daily email newsletter. Become an access member for all sorts of great bonus stuff, including early and free releases of this very podcast. And, of course, make sure to go and leave Seneca a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store. It really helps people to discover this podcast, something more important than ever as the U.S. and China drift toward the proverbial rocks. On to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us
1: off. All right, I've got one. I don't know if any. Single listener of ours will actually be interested in this, but if there's one person is interested in it, it will be worth it. I live on uh, in a hollow in uh, outside of Nashville, and there's no sewerage, so I'm building a house. And getting a septic tank permit is, you know, I thought I was living in a Republican state and there was like no regulations or anything, but that is clearly not the case. It's very difficult to get a septic permit. So I've had to do research into toilet alternatives. And <laughs> I've discovered this amazing world of, of toilets that don't require you to be plugged into the grid. And there are two that are really great. The one is the Sun Mar composting toilet, which basically turns your poop into compost, which you can use to then, you know... Grow your flowers or your crops. And the other one is called the Eco John Incinerator, which I have coming uh, by uh, um, delivery, hopefully, when I get back to Nashville. It's this huge box that basically takes gray water, which is shower and dishwater, and black water, which is toilet water, puts them in a big box and burns it to ash and Wait, you're left with burns some. water? So, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I know this is an odd recommendation, but if there's anybody listening who's struggling to either get a septic tank permit or doesn't know how to put a toilet in a place I'm no struggling sewage, to make sense of burning Eco-John water. john and Sanma are your friends. <laughs> okay, that may be the
0: loopiest recommendation we've ever had on this show, but thank you very much, Jeremy, and it should, that it should come from you is no surprise at all. <laughs> Sushi, why don't you tell us yeah, what you sure. us?
2: So, I'm going to recommend a novel by uh, Chimimanda Ngozi Adichie, yeah, uh, Americana. I oh, um, yeah, that novel. published 2013. I, th- I find it re- really relevant to our today's topic. You know, it's like um, it's more like a universal experience of foreign national who come into the U.S. to study and find, oh, how they're, now I need to figure out my racial identity in the societies and how others see me as a Nigerian. That's who she is. And then she also have a Reverse culture shock, like moving back to the you know top echelon of Nigeria society in Lagos. So she, uh, it's also a really, really well written love story. So if you have some spare time, I strongly recommend it.
0: It's one of my favorite novels, and I, one of the, the best part of it is that blog that she writes when she's in in oh, America. Yeah, yeah. She writes this blog, which is basically explaining uh, African, black Africans to African American blacks.
2: Yeah, yeah. And Explain, also I mean, and, and I,
0: I, it's it's brilliant. It's so funny. It's just it's just.
2: And I also think that's really beneficial if there is any Chinese students listen to it. I think it's actually pretty beneficial to try to connect your own experience to other, you know, foreign nationals. Not like trying to focus too much on your own like Chinese student experience only like, you know, how does US China relationship to do with it? Try to connect it to a broader, you know, racial story of the society, you might find another new word. That for is so, such wild
0: and great advice yeah absolutely I, I thought the same thing as I read that book I kept thinking you know oh, anyway, anyway. <laughs> Eric, great great. <laughs> moved on Adichie. yeah, yeah so uh, yeah and her other novels too half of a yellow sun absolutely great purple hibiscus they're great novels great novels. So I'm going to recommend a book that's a couple of years old as well
3: uh, called Fortunate Sons. The 120 Chinese boys who came to America went to school and revolutionized an ancient civilization. Um, yeah, so so this is a book. Very about, relevant. Yeah. yeah. So in, in 1872, this was kind of considered the first group of Chinese students yeah. in America came over and they were uh, sent back early. And it kind of I think there's a lot of interesting parallels and differences uh, between today and then and at that time kind of reformist forces and uh, conservatives within the Chinese government at that time clashing over these students and how some of them uh, adopted American culture uh, full on and some resisted and just a very charming uh, historical nonfiction about this group of students.
0: Eric, in the sunset of your life you can write a a book called Fortunate Fu or Dai about the (laughs) the 300,000 Chinese students who came to America and shamed their home culture (laughs) by driving around in Maserati's (laughs) okay great Uh, so my recommendation is this book right here it's called America Right or Wrong an Anatomy of American Nationalism that's right you heard it American Nationalism it's the second edition which was written still I mean it was published about six years ago and was incredibly prescient Uh, it really it talks about uh, the author's name is Anatole Lieven L-I-E-V-E-N an incredible book I'm, I'm only about a third of the way through with it right now but I just just keep like standing up and going Oh my god why haven't I read this before? Why didn't I read this Anyway it, it It presages this whole Phenomenon of Trumpism Like you wouldn't believe And uh uh, yeah, cannot hi- recommend it more highly. It's it's just absolutely fascinating. Uh, if you don't believe that there is such a thing as American nationalism, there are really two strains. I mean, there's he talks about the American nationalist thesis and the antithesis. The antithesis we're all deeply familiar with now because it's the you know strident America first sort of ethno nationalist nationalism of of the Trumpers. But uh, the American nationalist thesis is what, you know, sort of more what we were talking about, the American exceptionalist idea. And it's a noble one you know, about pluralism, about democracy, about the universality of American values. But it is also one that, that has a, a certain hubris, a certain arrogance, a certain um, a failure to sort of examine the historical context out of which that emerged. And this book is just absolutely great. So uh, that's what I got for you all. And with that, um, thanks once more to Sushi Two. Sushi, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And Eric Fish, yeah, thank you <laughs> for your insights into this incredibly important issue. And thanks again to the China Institute for having us back. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and that guy over there, Jeremy Goldcorn. <laughs> 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 so
2: took I'll you, you it too long. long. Took you too long. I'll let it out the pause.
0: I'll let it out the pause. Don't worry. <laughs> Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or Facebook at at SubChina News. Make sure to go and check out the other podcasts in our growing series of podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief and the GGV 996 podcast, which covers uh, technology and investing in China. Uh, We co produce that with our friends at the Venture Capital Outfit GGV. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you next week. Take care. Thanks, everyone.